0: Welcome to The Last Month at the Federal Circuit, a look at recent Federal Circuit decisions impacting the intellectual property community. We're joined today by Finnegan attorney Kevin Rotke to talk about mandamus decisions arising out of venue transfer disputes. Kevin, thanks for being with us. The Federal Circuit has recently issued a spate of mandamus decisions. Can you break down what we've seen over the last couple of months?
1: Sure. In September and the start of October, we've seen about 14 orders for mandamus petitions come down from the Federal Circuit. And of those 14 petitions, we've seen seven petitions granted and seven petitions denied, which is a higher grant rate than the Federal Circuit usually has. And so I wanted to look at some of those decisions that were granted, compare it with one of the denied ones, and see what we're seeing from the federal circuit because a lot of these are venue transfer motions to transfer under section 144 a for a more convenient forum and i think what's really interesting about these seven granted petitions is all seven of these are motions to transfer from the western district of texas to another forum and of the denied petitions We saw two denials for transfer of venue under Section 1404, and the other five were on different uh, mandamus issues that were raised by other defendants in other courts, but they were denied, as we typically see, for mandamus. And so this venue transfer mandamus coming out of the Western District of Texas for these seven petitions is something that I think is going to be interesting uh, to discuss. Maybe we can pull some information out of it and get a look at where the jurisdiction might be headed.
0: Well, great. Well, let's dive into there. What what do you think is driving the number of venue transfer decisions? I think it's a
1: couple of things. As I mentioned, all seven of the granted petitions were from the Western District of Texas. Actually, the two denied ones were also from the Western District of Texas. So we saw nine decisions issued by the federal circuit on transfer for venue and they all came out of one court and so looking at why that might be is the western district of texas as is well known in the patent community has a very busy docket uh, some reports put it at around 25 percent of all patent cases are being handled by that district. And so it's probably not surprising that if we're going to see venue motions, they're gonna be out of, not into, uh, one of the busiest districts in the country, but also if we're going to see a petition for mandamus coming out of the court, it's probably gonna be out of one of those busier courts like the Western District of Texas. And I think it's, it's also worth noting that we saw decisions earlier this summer from the federal circuit also dealing with mandamus petitions for transfer of venue from the Western District of Texas. One of those was the Hulu case in August, but there have been others earlier in the year and they had mixed results for both being granted and denied. But I think because of the popularity of this forum, you're seeing a lot of patent suits filed there, which is no surprise. And companies that might have their headquarters or primary operations in another district, not surprisingly, want to go to the district where they have their headquarters or primary operations. And so you're seeing these transfer motions. And when they get denied, those companies are looking at the federal circuit to try to correct what they see as an improperly denied motion.
0: Right. And generally, how has the federal circuit been ruling on those uh, venue transfer petitions?
1: Sure. As I mentioned, uh, seven of the nine venue transfer petitions were granted in the last month and a half, which is a, a high number. I think one of the things that's interesting about this compared with venue transfer motions earlier this year and even last year and the year before is that the federal circuit granted seven of these and they denied two of them, but they didn't vacate and remand any decisions for the lower court to reconsider they just granted the petitions in order to transfer or they denied it and said keep it in the western district I think it's a bit of a change and that's something that we can maybe talk about a little bit more but one of the questions is going to be why did the federal circuit grant these seven petitions instead of granting one or two and then remanding for the others and I'm not going to presume to guess the court's reasoning i I no, they will have the reasons for, for doing grants instead of vacating. But I think one of the things that's going to come out when we talk about the individual decisions is that there were a number of common factors in each of those decisions that the federal circuit seemed to reiterate was an error in the district court's analysis below and a reason why the district court should have Granted the transfer motion, and the reasons why the Federal Circuit did grant the mandamus petitions to transfer those cases to another forum. And perhaps when you have those recurring fact patterns, some even involve the same parties, they had multiple mandamus petitions pending from different cases below, but the facts were very similar. And so the Federal Circuit might have looked at those and said, We've already made this decision in one petition and provided guidance to the district court going forward it's more efficient for us to grant the similar facts on the same party or on similarly situated parties and grant the mandamus for those petitions, as opposed to sending it back for remand for the district court to redecide the motion, which is just by necessity going to take longer, because the district court has to go in, reevaluate the facts under the new guidance from the federal circuit, and then make a decision on whether to transfer. And because the standard for mandamus is so high, it's an abuse of discretion standard, and you have to show a, quote, clear and indisputable right to relief. If the federal circuit saw all of these similarly situated petitions in its mind, it might have said, well, we've found that the standard is met here. And we're looking at similar facts across other cases. And so we're going to grant those petitions there. That's mm-hmm. what I think might have happened. But of course, it's always hard to tell what the federal circuits is thinking behind the scenes. We just have the decisions as they were granted.
0: Well, and speaking of those decisions, can you walk uh, through some of those and, and and discuss some of the themes that may be developing over the, the last few months?
1: Sure. Let me kind of talk at a high level about those seven petitions. As I mentioned, I've similar facts. And then I'll talk about two of the decisions, one granted, one denied, in a little bit more detail those specific facts and relate them back to the general themes. In the granted petitions, the federal circuit pointed to some errors in the legal analysis that were committed by the district court and varied from case to case, varied on facts to facts. But the themes that we saw coming out of these seven decisions that were granted is one, the district court said that when it was considering the convenience of the the witnesses who were expected to testify at trial, it placed less emphasis on the party witnesses because the district court below said that the party witnesses could be compelled by the parties. And so it focused more on the convenience of non-party witnesses. The federal circuit said that the district court should have also looked more thoroughly at the convenience of the party witnesses. And that was one of the things that came across in several of the decisions was exactly how to weigh the various types of witnesses and put that into the transfer analysis. Another one was the convenience of the witnesses as far as distance to travel the, the court below is sometimes looking at how far is a witness going to travel in order to get to either the forum that the case is currently in or the forum where the case is asking to be transferred to and the district court had looked at almost just the raw distance between the witness and the courthouse in Texas where the original transfer motions were pending and then it compared that distance to where the defendant was trying to get the case transferred to. A federal circuit looked at that and said, we need to put a little more analysis into this and also look at the time because there is a distance of driving time between the Western District of Texas and the closest airport to flights from, say, California or the East Coast or internationally. And so the court should have factored in that driving time when considering the convenience and the travel time. And that helps to look at the witnesses and figure out what's going to be more convenient for them because it's not just a raw number of miles. It's actually a more holistic analysis uh, when looking at that. And a third one that the court identified was below the district court had faulted defendants for not showing whether a witness was unwilling to testify and so therefore had to be subpoenaed by the court, whether that's the court where the case was currently pending in Texas, or whether it was the court where the parties were asking to transfer to. And the federal circuit said the court shouldn't have done that below. And it should have just looked at the subpoena power because there were disparate numbers of witnesses in the various forums. And so if a larger number of witnesses resided in the forum where the defendants were asking to transfer the case to that court might have more subpoena power over those witnesses whether they were willing to or unwilling to testify as opposed to where the case was currently pending which might have subpoena power over maybe one or two witnesses and so if you're looking at it on balance one court has more subpoena power for those unwilling witnesses if they are in fact unwilling and so that needs to go into the analysis as well rather than requiring the defendants to show that they were unwilling to testify before reaching that analysis. And there were other ones. And again, these are all very fact-specific. I'm generalizing a bit here, but it's always going to turn on the facts of a particular case. And then each of these seven decisions, there were other specific facts and other specific guidance that the federal circuit provided. But those were some of the themes that played across multiple decisions.
0: Well, as you as you pointed out, the Western District of Texas is one of the most popular forums for patent litigation. So what, what effect could these uh, rulings from the Federal Circuit have on patent litigation? I think we
1: might see more motions to transfer for convenience under Section 1404 in multiple districts. And part of the reason for that is we're getting guidance from the Federal Circuit on things like how to analyze the party's convenience, whether it's where they're located or how far they have to travel, and the types of for lack of a better word, presence of employees or offices of defendants and plaintiffs in a particular district, whether it's where the case is currently situated or whether it's where the case is asking to be transferred to. And one of the cases that I think highlights this analysis a little bit is the Ingrid Juniper Network's decision. And in that, the federal circuit was looking at the presence of Juniper, the defendant who filed the mandamus petition, both in the Western District of Texas, where the case was originally filed, and in the Northern District of California, where Juniper asked to transfer the case to. Below, the district court had noted that Juniper had an office, but it was a small office. And when deciding the mandamus petition, the federal circuit noted that that particular office for Juniper in Texas really didn't bear on the merits of the case. And so it didn't provide a lot of for lack of a better word, anchoring into the Western District of Texas with respect to this particular case. And it also looked at the plaintiff and said that the plaintiff had an office in the Western District of Texas, which the district court noted below. But when deciding the mandamus, the federal circuit said that the plaintiff had an ephemeral presence in Texas that appeared to be established for the purpose of bringing patent litigation there, as opposed to being a more operating office related to the merits of the case. And so for that reason, I think we're going to see a little more thorough analysis, not because district courts haven't generally done a good job of analyzing 1404, but now we have a little more information from the federal circuit, how to look at some of these factors. And so that might increase discovery costs when you're looking at venue discovery. It might increase the number of motions to transfer under 14.04 because we now have more information as defendants or as plaintiffs on how to analyze this convenience factor. And then that's going to just naturally lead to, I think, perhaps more of these motions being filed on lower courts as they're trying to determine the edges, where particular facts fit in and weigh in favor of transfer and where particular facts are less clear cut and maybe don't rise to the level of warranty transfer for a more convenient forum. And there are multiple factors that are gonna weigh into this. So a particular fact might favor transfer in one case and it might not favor transfer in another case, depending on how those shake out. And then we'll see those variations going forward and I think we're just going to get a little more flurry of this motion activity at lower courts for the time being.
0: Generally, where do you see jurisprudence heading on, on the question of venue transfer, and what, what might those consequences be?
1: It seems like in these decisions, at least compared to the decisions they were appealed from in the lower court, we're seeing more of an emphasis on the overall convenience of the witness and the parties and the relationship to the merits of the case. That's balanced by a number of other factors that we're not talking about on this podcast because we're just focusing on some narrow aspects of these particular decisions. But looking at a more holistic approach because it is a bit of a balancing test for 1404 and understanding how to apply party convenience, witness convenience, maybe presence of the parties in the various forums into that analysis, I think we're just gonna see more more balancing, more holistic things. And courts may start to take closer looks at particular facts that they looked at before, but now have more guidance as to how to look at those. So instead of just raw distance, we may see courts looking at the distance in relation to the time for a witness to get to a particular forum. Or we might see courts, instead of looking at just does a party have a presence in a forum, what is that presence in the forum? So we might see a little bit more thoroughness in those types of analyses. And in a number of cases, it may not change the outcome. In some cases, it may change the outcome. But we're going to start to see that, I think. And of course, all these are are very fact-specific, right? And so in one case, a defendant may be able to transfer for convenience out of a forum, but on similar facts, in another case they may not be able to because the employees might be particularly related which is one of the things the federal circuit had noted in its decisions so far in these seven decisions granting mandamus as to how to determine whether another form might be more convenient and so i think we're we're going to see the continued analysis of these various factors moving forward as parties try to find those edges and try to find those balances when it is more appropriate to transfer for convenience and when it's less appropriate to transfer.
0: Okay, well, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much, Kevin. You've been listening to a podcast from Finnegan, one of the largest IP law firms in the world. We've been speaking with Finnegan partner, Kevin Rodkey. For more commentary on intellectual property news and issues, to listen to other podcasts, and to receive additional information on the firm, please visit www.finnegan.com. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Finnegan.